right, everybody. So today we are back for another Q&A with my temporary co-host, Abel Chavai. Oh. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so this is, I don't even know what this is, number seven, six, something like that. So as always, guys, you can send, uh, you can post below and post your questions there for future Q&As, or you can go uh, Instagram. I usually look at my DM, so you can post there as well. So welcome again, Abel. Welcome, everybody uh, that are tuning in. I'm very well. How are you doing? I don't know if you asked me how I am. but <laughs> Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm uh, glad we're going to do a double today. So we're going to release this individually, but we got Brian Borstein coming on in a little bit. So we're going to discuss uh, what do we have. I think just kind of like some exercise form, probably going to discuss the coaching with Steve Hall and a few other topics there. So it'll be good. Long one. Yeah. All right. So first question by Brandon, is there any benefit to cycling rep ranges like mind pump? I guess that's mind pump media. He probably means uh, mind pump promotes. I've been training primarily in the seven to 10 rep range and was wondering if doing a phase more in the 10 to 15 rep range would be beneficial. What do you think? Abel? Um, I think if things are working well, then I don't see the need of changing things up. Um, I know some people like to do it that I respect and I value their opinion highly. So I know Berge Fagerli, for example, he does do with people like one or two weeks of higher rep training uh, every once in a while, kind of just proactively. But I, I think that rep ranges, I personally only change them and I only recommend the change to anyone if there is a stagnation. And then Oftentimes, I actually will just go lower in reps. So like from 12, let's say we will go down to eight on the bench press if things are really stagnated uh, because it's easier to progress strength-wise. Um, and, and otherwise, like if you have joint issues, for example, then going higher in reps. But otherwise, I, I don't really see the, the need for it. Um, what do you think? I think acutely, it's not going to matter that much. Meaning I think if you had you know two groups in the 12-week study and you said, okay, you're doing seven to 10 reps and this one's doing 10 to 15 reps. If it's equated for volume and honestly, even just equated for number of hard sets, I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. However, over the course of your entire training career, I do think it makes sense to have different rep ranges. Uh, you, you know, some discussion on, I mean, there's actually some studies kind of debating this a little bit, but um, you know, generally speaking, we talk about like the slow switch versus the fast switch muscle fibers. And, and that might be more at the extremes of like, you know, if you're only doing three to fives and then you switch to like 20 to 30 reps, like you're probably going to see differences there. Um, and, and there are some different muscle fiber distributions when you look at powerlifters versus like bodybuilders, for example. Um, but I just think if you're trying to maximize muscle growth over, you know, a, a 20 year lifting career or more why wouldn't you try other rep ranges and try to get something else out of it? Even if that means, well, I'm trying to go through a strength phase so that I can potentially use more weight during a hypertrophy phase. So I drop down and then other times, maybe I'm a little bit banged up, go to higher reps. Um, so if you've been doing seven to 10 forever for a long time, I'd say switch it up to a 10 to 15 and, and see how you do with it. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe switch it up more, like go to like even higher reps to ac actually make a difference. Cause like going from 10 to right. 15, that's not that big of a gap. Right. No, it's not. That, that's a good point as well. All right. So question number two is, is kind of in a similar realm of that. So 
I'd love to hear your thoughts, maybe on a future podcast, about the actual necessity of a structured program. And this is by uh, Hamza, by the way. I had a theory lately of if having the mindset to push each set for as many reps as possible, certainly adaptations in terms of progressive overload would occur naturally. So as long as you're pushing each set to the max, the structure of the sentence is a little uh, off. So I'm just trying to work through it. Uh, while you may not be able to gauge progressive overload quite as well, there may be some pros to training instinctively due to maybe busy gyms where a machine programmed might be taken or training with a friend who has some different exercises he likes. So, so basically it sounds like, Hey, as long as you're training as hard as you can, does the programming matter? They always have to have the specific exercises and uh, maybe, maybe like a periodization. Uh, I, I think that's actually a pretty good topic. So you want to jump yeah, in yeah. first or do you want me to go? Uh, yeah, I would love to jump in on, uh, first on this one um, because this is, this is actually something that I've been thinking about uh, quite a bit lately. And, and here I would actually use a, a Jeffrey various Schofield quote or like what I imagine he would say in a video, like <laughs> maybe some people can get away with it. However, if you're a natural, you have to be structured. <laughs> No, but like, um, no, but so, so I actually not long ago, I probably would have given a different advice or di different response to this because I was kind of, uh, shifting more and more in, in the direction of, yeah, basically you need to train close enough to failure. You need to do a, at least a sufficient amount of volume. And then basically the adaptations are going to happen anyway. And over time, you're just naturally going to feel that the weights are too easy. So you will go heavier. But I think at, at this point that um, you have to be a bit more proactive about the progressive overload process, basically. And if you're just letting that to quote unquote naturally happen, then it often won't, I think. And, and the thing that made me think of that, and maybe we will talk about this with Brian later. So you will, maybe you will hear this from me again, but you know, there's more and more talk about how you don't maybe need to train as close to failure as we thought so far. Um, and really it's all about like accumulating a certain amount of volume at a sufficient intensity of effort, but that doesn't need to be like super high. So it just always brings me back to this point of like, then why aren't more people making gains in the gym? Like, why do we see so many people not getting anywhere? Like, um, really naturals that are um, not like ultra super dedicated and, and meticulous. Like you, we don't just randomly see them improving like crazy impressively in the gym. Like we, most people in the gym don't get anywhere, even those that are relatively consistent um, or at least don't get beyond like the early intermediate stage often because like then it wouldn't be that hard to progress. Like you just kind of need to train sort of hard and at least some amount of sets and then you would grow but that's not what we see we see that it's actually pretty hard to improve beyond a certain point and i think one explanation is that like hard training and like shooting for like actual rirs and like more and more weight that you can hit with that rir are two different things because um once you get like strong enough i think basically the sets will always kind of feel challenging, even if you're like not really pushing your limits. So, I, and I just experienced this recently, like on a bunch of lifts, I didn't want to go heavier because I didn't want to hurt myself. But I felt like, man, like th this is hard enough. Like surely th this is working. And then I tried like, okay, like I'm, fuck it, I'm going to risk it. Like I'm going to try to go heavier. 
and on a leg curl, for example, like it's the standing plate loaded leg curl machine. And I was using 40 kilos and it feels like hard and kind of awkward on the hamstrings. Like, man, is it, is this going to tear? Like, this is like scary. Yeah. And I went up to like 42 kilos and then 45 and like, yeah, man, like I, I could still hit the reps. Mm -hmm. It felt harder, but I would yeah. say like, it was still a zero RIR. So there was no difference. So I think like there's a difference between RPE and RIR, which we kind of use like interchangeably now. Um, so I think that's why you need to be a bit more purposeful and you need to chase that progressive overload more like directly. And I think that's pretty hard to do if you don't have a structured program and you just kind of want to always train hard. So sorry, that was a long monologue. I'll shut up. No, that was good. Um, no, I, so I agree. I think like one kind of, not really a counter example, but I know uh, like if anybody's familiar with fortitude training with Scott Stevenson, he had three different days and then one was uh, muscle rounds. And he was saying how like, this is great. You can do this routine anywhere and you can kind of go to this gym and pick your exercises for muscle rounds on this gym. And I think that's probably fine. And obviously this is not the whole program. That's just one aspect of it. But I, I think that's probably fine if you're like on vacation or something like that. But long-term, I think there's a couple of reasons that just doing whatever that day, but just pushing to failure wouldn't work. I mean, for one, we've talked many times about this neurological adaptation you get when you're starting a new exercise. So like if you're constantly doing exercises that are new, every time you adapt, it's just going to be like, well, the sh your body's going to adapt by kind of getting better at the exercise first, rather than, okay, I need to actually gain more muscle, right? Yeah. Um, and, and then secondly, like what you said, I'm, I'm sure we've all experienced where it's like, this feels really hard, but it's not until you've been doing this new, like, this is something I found with, with training with uh, Steve Hall, because like 90% of the exercises I was doing were new exercises. And so it was like, well, this feels hard, but then the next week it feels like similarly hard. And I was actually able to put more weight on. And again, that goes back to the neurological adaptation. Um, and it just wasn't until like, you really had like a zero RAR week where you're like, Oh, I really like could go even harder. And then, you know, the next time it's like a little bit more, and that's, this is after training well over a decade, almost two decades. It's still something to be said for like having to beat what you did before. Um, so I'm not huge on like a ton of variation all the time. I think if you've been stalled out for a long time. Sure. Find a new exercise and experiment with that for months at a time. Uh, but I do think that there is something to be said for programming. Now, I, I would still say that I think programming is less important for hypertrophy compared to uh, like powerlifting, for example. But I, I still wouldn't haphazardly say, well, as long as you're training to failure, you're going to optimize growth. I think you'll still grow and probably make most of the progress that you can. But I, I think if you're trying to get everything out of it, that's a big thing. And also just I do think a big part of why we don't see a lot of people progressing is because they don't eat in a surplus either. Right. Yeah. I do think that like probably the average gym goer, they're just kind of eating normally. So they grow as much as they will on that diet and then they just kind of stop yeah yeah that that is actually something that i i had to discover as well and, and i can think of a couple of i actually went back and wrote to some old clients that um like our term together ended and i feel like i sort of let them down like they didn't make the gains that i i think they could have or should have and i was kind of baffled at the time like why not and like 
honestly, I, th- I think that was the missing piece in, in some of them that they just didn't like gain enough weight. Like they were like trying yeah. to do it like too lean. So I actually went back and kind of apologized to them and like, oh, really? them, like, hey, hey, so like, uh, I know I cannot undo what, but but I think that this is this is what was missing. So I don't know what you're doing now, but just make sure that you eat enough. anymore. <laughs> right, right. Cool. Yeah. Um, so Dan Merrith asks, I have a question that's been bothering me for years. It seems the medical community doesn't like to address hormonal issues. Is it because it's complicated issue or just expensive on insurance companies? So Dr. Abel, what do you think? Um, so everybody sit back because now a long monologue is coming. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, you go for it. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think it's a couple issues. I, I mean, one, there are a lot of fringe doctors out there where and this is what's like really tough with medicine in general is because you have like the people who are trying to be as evidence-based as possible. And then you have some people who then find that like, hey, even though this is what like the studies say, like my experience is a little bit different, or this is like something that I'm going to try. And then you, it's like, it's not like, well, there's the evidence-based and then there's all the quacks. Like there really is everything in between. Like Mark Hyman, for example, is to me kind of a, a quack, but he also says plenty that is like super evident. I mean, is very evidence-based and like we have a lot of info on it, but then they just extrapolate too much. They look at, oh, well, this mouse study showed this. So clearly we should never do this. You know, this one study showed this and it's just a problem. And, and again, there's everything in between. And we see this in lifting as well, right? We see people who are evidence-based and they'll look at like, they think they're evidence-based. They'll say, oh, well, this study showed this, you should always do that. Well, so, well how about the individual data points? You know, as somebody who's gone through significant health issues uh, myself, I can say that I've done things, tried supplements or food patterns that worked for me, uh, but maybe there's not a ton of evidence for it, or there is some evidence for it, but it's preliminary. So addressing the hormonal thing specifically, I think it's tough because you would have like, you're just out of school endocrinologist who's just learned by the books. And then you might have somebody who has been administering, let's say TRT for 20 years, and they're going to have knowledge base based on their patients that isn't necessarily going to be found in a medical journal. And they may try to publish some of this data and get it out there. Uh, but it's not necessarily going to be widespread initially. And then some of the things that they learn are actually going to end up being BS. Maybe they made some wrong associations. And then some of it's actually going to be found to be true. You know, maybe they notice, wow, all of my patients have this shown up on their blood work. Uh, and maybe we should start, we end up finding this in the literature later. So I do think it's a complicated issue. And I do think it's rife with a, a lot of these people who are, um, you know, you got, I don't want to name names, but there's like two doctors I can think of who are like well-known TRT doctors who like, yeah, they administer TRT, but they also administer stuff that I don't think any doctor should be administering, including like some of these research chemical peptides. So that that's basically, I, I think why I, I think it is a touchy subject. I think it's something that a lot of physicians don't know beyond the basics, right? It's not something that they just have like a, a ton of depth on. And that's for a lot of specialties, you know, your average, like, primary care physician isn't necessarily going to have this in-depth knowledge on gastroenterology. Gastroenterology is not like the super controversial specialty. It's just, you know, you, your general doctors are going to be limited knowledge. I think I saw something 
Um, it was like Stronger by Science podcast that just came out. And I think Greg said this from like a, maybe like a liability standpoint. He was talking about, if anybody saw it recently, he was saying the correlation between weightlifting and mortality and longevity and all of that. And he was saying, you know, if you're doing more than four or five hours per week, he's like, I think anybody would probably be fine with, you know, 60 minutes of weight training per week. But based on some of the evidence, we don't really know if let's say like four or five hours per week is harmful. So at that point, I'm not comfortable saying that you have to talk to your doctor. And it makes sense that he would say that. But like most doctors are going to have no idea. If you go to your primary care physician, they say, hey, is four to five hours per week of working out okay? They're just going to pull whatever answer out of their ass, right? It's, it's not good. But yeah. so it makes sense he would say that. But my point is just that like I wouldn't depend on your primary care physician to have this in-depth knowledge on anything related to lifting, nutrition, or, or anything like beyond basic hormone stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that was my input that yeah at the end cool <laughs> okay <laughs> so another question hey dave i ended up way underweight from too much intermittent fasting 21 to 22 hours a day low carb calorie deficit by default what's weird is despite losing weight my body composition got worse like i looked much more lean and toned when i was about 10 to 12 pounds heavier what could be the culprit lean mass loss and where do you suggest going from here, calorie training wise, to get back to a leaner looking body comp? Uh, so I just so, rambled. So so he lost ahead. weight and looks less um, like well shaped. Yeah, he he feels like his body comp is worse. Yeah. By the way, you saw the rhyme: weight shaped. Um, so yeah, I mean it's, I mean the lean mass loss could be one thing, but um, it's also. So we would have to see how he looks like, because um, I, I think both of us kind of learned over time to not take people's like self-assessment for granted about how they mm -hmm. look. Right. Um, but also um, you, I mean, I'm sure you know how it is when you start dieting, for example, and, or maybe you, like you got actually quite lean, but you're still dieting and then you just look super flat and that, that can, sometimes it yeah. actually makes you look fatter. It, it's very frustrating. Um, and then also there is the thing of some people are just not, um, not ready yet to really make a, a very lean, like low body fat percentage look good. So they just don't have enough mass. So it could be that he actually didn't lose any lean mass, but he just doesn't look that buff yet. And so far, like had some of that extra intramuscular fat and also like the, the actual like sub Q fat on the arms and shoulders just make him look a bit more like rounded. So um, it, it could be many things, but um, yeah, I mean, Lee mess loss, he's, he's doing like intermittent fasting uh, pretty, or did he specify what he's doing exactly? He said, yeah, he's, he's fasting 21 to 22 hours a day. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. So I, I would say that's pushing it. Uh, if someone is doing that like day in, day out, I think so like even like when I was a beginner lifter, I mean, beginner. So I, yeah, I was lifting for like a year, maybe less than a year. Maybe I definitely noticed that, that, um, when I was doing these 20 hour fasts a day, um, it almost seemed like as soon as I, I switched to a, like a more reasonable eating window as if that was, I, I mean, I heart, I hate it when people say these kinds of things, like I immediately started building muscle, but it actually felt like things started happening as soon as I did that. And like, I was just spinning my wheels a lot more when I was doing these 20 hour fasts. 
Um, so I, I would say that's pushing it. Like I think like up to 20 hours, maybe but over 20. I mean, man, that's, that's a really long fasting uh, time. If you do, do that, if you do that every day. Yeah. So I am a fan of intermittent fasting, but that I, I would not recommend that for really anybody. That's a, that's a long fast. So like, I love the classic, like 16, eight. Um, I've never noticed any worse results from 16, eight compared to just literally eating all day. Uh, you know, I, I discussed in my video with um, Steve Hall that going from my previous eight hours per day to like 14 hours per day didn't seem to benefit me. And back when I first started intermittent fasting in 2011, so we're literally going over a decade now, um, I did not lose, or not, not only did I not lose muscle, but I was gaining muscle at at least an equal rate as before. So um, I'm all about that. But that's, yeah, 21, 22 hours is a very long time. I would generally recommend three to five protein feedings per day. So if you're, it sounds like you're only eating one meal a day, maybe two, but it sounds like one meal a day. So I think you have to be careful with that. I'm not surprised that you would have lost some lean body mass and you were in a calorie deficit. So I think probably what Abel said is accurate. I can't imagine you didn't lose fat. You probably lost a lot of glycogen lost some water, lost the fullness in the muscles, and then maybe a couple pounds of fat and certainly lean body mass, like even actual muscle tissue. Uh, so yeah, I would, I would not, I would <laughs> reverse basically everything you did there. So I would go back to at least eight hours of eating per day, at least three meals per day of adequate protein, meaning probably around one gram per pound of body weight. Um, I did, you didn't mention anything about your training, but certainly I would make sure that your training is adequate at least three days a week. I mean, so many variations on training, but you know, at least six to eight hard sets per body part per week, uh, focusing on progressive overload, et cetera. And I would just try to get back to where you were and, and then maybe do a proper cut after that. I wouldn't try to continue cutting at this point. If you really feel like you've lost muscle, uh, like to that extreme, I'd get back to where you were as best as possible. Then I'd go into a proper cut if that's something you still want to do. Can I ask you, because um, uh, I know you like to do some of these longer fasts. Like what, what was the longest fast you, you've ever done? Uh, I've done two 72-hour fasts. Two 72-hour fasts. So you've never done like, um, like a week long fast no. or something like that? No, I'd be open to trying like a five-day. Um, but that three-day, it was both times were because I was having a lot of GI issues. And so I felt much better doing them. Um, it kind of sucks <laughs> because you realize like how much of your day is either eating or like spending time thinking about eating or buying time until your next meal. So yeah. you're more productive, which is cool. Um, and the hunger isn't so bad, although both of mine were done while bulking up. Like if I was dieting and then tried to do a 72 hour fast, I would probably really suck. Um, I don't think I lost any muscle from it, but it's not something I'd, I recommend doing regularly. It's also not something that I think we have enough evidence to say is like really beneficial. Like maybe there's some longevity benefits to it, but I don't think we have a ton of evidence on that. But I will say after my last one, I was just curious. So at the end of the 72 hours, right before my meal, um, I just did like max reps, pull-ups and I got 25 pull-ups and uh, that's not a PR, but it's, up there so i you know that's just one thing i think i did max reps push-ups too um but all i, mean, I say that it was fine but but seriously like the fact that you were able to do that i mean isn't that like like to me that 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 by itself is 
like there there are these debates of like how many carbs you need for like glycogen mm-hmm. like availability for for your training and it's okay like you didn't train before that so but still like you fasted for three days so i mean yeah kind of like is a good example um and so just one one, one last thing like how how is your sleep during these like let's say you do 72 hours like because uh, that that's one thing that really just uh i would be open to trying it mm-hmm. uh, even like a challenge like how long can i keep it up but i like go, going to bed hungry was always a, a an issue for me i think the first first night i would do it i would just not sleep like uh, um, yeah my stomach would be so empty but i don't know um so to clarify just real quick on the glycogen thing i mean keep in mind i only did one set right so like if yeah. i had done like a full workout who knows Um, but I do prefer to just in general, go to a workout without eating a lot. Like I I just feel so like bogged down if, if I have a big meal. So just kind of a side note, um, sleep was not really an issue. I have to go back and look at my, uh, like training log of that. But I think the first night typically is like when you're the hungriest. And then after that first and second night, you're probably relatively hungry. And then it kind of I know people who have done, I've never done the five to seven day fast, but people who have say that the first two days are the hardest. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I'm a pretty light sleeper and I need like good conditions to sleep, but I haven't experienced too much of an issue there. Mm. Yeah. All right. Interesting. All right. So a little bonus topic here. So we were talking about a few things off air that we could, a few that we could touch on, but one that we had mentioned was uh, with the podcast with natural hypertrophy. So that was my first time talking with him. I definitely liked to definitely would like to get him back on. Um, but how did you feel his thoughts on genetics? I felt like were, I wouldn't say controversial, but there were a lot of comments in the comments section about it saying they either agree with him or they, they strongly disagree with him. I obviously based on the podcast kind of disagreed with him, but what were some of your initial thoughts there? I mean, I, I was um, I was surprised there by uh, the the lack of nuance there in, in his um, in his thinking because I mean clearly he's a, a very sharp, uh, intelligent guy, and um, it's it, it very much seemed like a case of looking at his own experience and just trying to generalize that or or make like a, a an observation off of that that will apply to like the wide world out there and that's usually not good when we do that because obviously we are biased but i mean first of all like to me like looking at his physique and um also knowing some stuff about his transformation to me it's clear that he he has good genetics for muscle building so for me right away the fact that he would say that he has he has bad genetics. I don't know. Some people seem to think that those things can like coexist, but to, to me, right. they can't. So it's, it's almost like, it's almost like saying, um, well, like in reality, I'm, I, I'm a short guy. Trust me. Like somehow I'm seven feet, but, but I'm really short. Like it's, it's like, no, like if, if you look like natural hypertrophy, then by definition, you have like definitely above average genetics. So like that, that's right. like very broad, like oversimplified inside. But what, 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 are you, what, what are your initial thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I get, I, I don't fully agree that it's like a straightforward by definition thing, or, or I should say, I do agree with that. But I don't think that for everybody who maybe isn't as experienced, that that's going to be blanketly true right? Like just because you're wealthy, 
you know, you could say, well, I, I was born poor and I didn't have opportunities, but I worked really hard and now I'm, I'm super wealthy. Like that could exist. And you and I know that if you look like natural hypertrophy while natural, you do have good genetics because we've seen so many examples, but that's not going to be clear to somebody who's just like new to it. Or even a few years in, they might think, oh, it's just the hard work, right? Um, I think so. One interesting example is Jeffrey Verity Schofield had mentioned on his community tab or whatever, they had people rate his genetics. So, and he put, he actually made a whole video on it. And I had said to him, I think probably about 85th percentile. And I had kind of given my reasoning. He included that quote in the video. And I think on average, people voted him around that, around 85th percentile for, you know, a natural. And you think about it and say, okay, so he has been lifting for, I think, nine or 10 years. Um, he is sitting at, I think he and uh, natural hypertrophy are the same height. Jeff is probably about 200 pounds and I don't know, maybe what do you think on those recent pictures? 12, 12 to 14%. Yeah. On those one, like 15 at most. At okay. Most. So let, let's just say like 13%, you know, whatever. And natural hypertrophy is 210 and probably leaner. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe 12, 13%, you know, I mean, he's got good abs. So let's just say even close. So we got Jeff at the same height at 200 pounds, and then you got natural hypertrophy at least 10 pounds heavier, right? And at the same height. So what's that going to be 90th percentile, 95th percentile? I, I mean, there's just not a lot of people who walk around like that. And so, and that was like a community vote on Jeffrey's channel. And, and again, what I would say. So I would put natural hypertrophy as probably like top 10th percentile in terms of potential. Like there just aren't many people who, who walk around at 210 at that leanness. And uh, so, so basically one of the following has to be true because he, this was the quote that I wanted to bring up. He said, specifically, he's like, I don't think that a lot, there are many, like he said, I don't think if everybody was doing what I've done, all the work I put in, et cetera, that they wouldn't look at least as good as me, if not better. Do you, I don't know if you remember him saying that yeah, specifically. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, you know, I can't imagine somebody not looking at least this good, if not better than if they did everything I've done, which is, I thought very interesting. I can't believe I didn't bring this up because that is an exact quote almost that I would say. Mm-hmm. I've said, talking about my genetics I, and why I think I have poor genetics is, is why, I, or, you know, not the best genetics is that I've said, it's hard for me to imagine anybody lifting like I have over the last 16 plus years, not looking at least as good as me. And, and I can't even think of examples of people who have been doing it as long as I have, who do not look at least as good as me. The difference is he has 20 pounds more muscle than I do. <laughs> so we're both <laughs> saying this thing, but he has at least 20 pounds more muscle than I do. So one of two things has to be true. Either he's right. And he has totally average genetics and I just have bottom of the barrel dog crap genetics, or I'm right. And I have about average genetics and he has fantastic genetics, or I suppose a middle option could be I'm like 40th percentile and he's like 60th. You know what I mean? Like it could, it doesn't have to be this or that. It could be kind of more in the middle there, but um, based on what I've seen, 
I, I would say, well, obviously I'm biased that I think I'm, I'm more right there, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I just, you know, when I, when I look around, I really don't see any people who have been at this 15 plus years who don't have close to or better physique than me at least, but I'd see plenty of people who have been doing it as long as he has, who doesn't look anywhere near as good as him. Yeah. I mean, and obviously that's so unfair. I, I would say, so like, take someone like me uh, with my social circle, like both of those statements are like, I don't even really know people in person who have lifted for that long period. Right. Yeah. Like, this is not a big sample size relatively. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is like the people that I do know um, that have been lifted, lifting for that long, uh, I know them from the fitness industry. And, right. uh, and yeah, like oftentimes, like, yeah, if, if I think of the people who have lifted, I mean, in your case, like how, like six, 16 years or how long has it been? Yeah, at least. Yeah. yeah. So like those people are, I mean, m- almost always, they're going to be like, at least like 10 years older than you. Like you're kind of a unique case that you started so young. Right. Um, and those will be like people like Berge, Fagerli, like Jeff Alberts, like Eric Helms, you know, like these guys. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, they, they have as good of a physique as, as you do, but I mean, okay, that's, that's again, not a fair sample size. Those, those are from the fitness industry. So probably they will have had some talent, at least if, if they got into this industry in the first place. Right. And then, um, and then another thing is, uh, if I, if I really think about like within the fitness industry, like, uh, yeah, I, I can name people who have done what natural hypertrophy did and they didn't have a, at least as good of a physique, like, um, I, even, even someone like Menno Hanselmans, like, I don't know, like from, from what I'm seeing, I would say natural hypertrophy has, has a better physique. Like at least his arms are much more impressive than Menno's. Like probably has like Jeffries are much more impressive than Menno's, for example, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, also like a bread, bread Loomis, you know, like, uh, I would say natural hypertrophy's physique is rivaling like Eric Helms is like maybe maybe, like would it be fair to like kind of put them in the same bracket yeah so I mean if anything I feel like he's leaner at 210 assuming that these pictures I'm seeing of him where he's like pretty lean if that's him at 210 then he's probably bigger than Eric Helms yeah like uh yeah it's the only like flaw I can enough flaw but from a bodybuilding perspective the only flaw I can see in his physique is that he seems like relatively narrow mm. um but otherwise like um his midsection is is amazing um yeah his, his muscle bellies look good I think he has pretty big arms so yeah I mean it's and I don't know like like does he think I'm not sure how much he is one of those people in the industry because I haven't his training content, I didn't actually look at as much because I really enjoyed his like philosophical kind of ramblings and uh, calling out people and things like that much more because he's very good at that. But I don't know if he's one of those people who thinks that he has some method that like, like almost nobody has in even in the evidence based um, like sphere of the fitness industry. I don't know if he is of that opinion. Um, If he is, then maybe that's why he's thinking that yeah, if people had done what he has, and I know that he, he was telling you that he has like no social life because he's dedicating mm-hmm. that time to training and stuff. So yeah, it, it's understandable that he would have that kind of bias. I'm just surprised that he would be so biased because like he seems like a pretty 
rational person. Right, right. I just think it's impossible to separate out your own, not impossible, but it's almost impossible to separate out your own personal experiences from your conclusions, right? I, I mean, going back to like the, the medicine topic, right? So if I had no health issues in my life, I probably would be more on the camp of everything, like only going by the textbook of what I was taught and anybody who has any recommendations for medicine outside of that is, is BS. Your, your supplements are BS, your anecdotes are BS, your special diets, BS. But having actually gone through some pretty serious things and finding actual significant help from things that were a little bit, on, not like quackery, but just like, oh, like diet actually did help this thing that, you know, my gastroenterologist told me wouldn't help. And then like, I could actually measure this, right? And I'm much more open to that. So that's my bias based on my experience, right? And if you've worked super hard, uh, you, of course, you're going to, I've said this many times, I think on our podcast in the past, if, if I was somebody who responded really well to training, well, I also put in an incredible amount of work. So I would just assume it's because I'm working so hard, right? I mean, this was something that until you get out there and, and you start to see other people who have worked similarly hard. Now, natural hypertrophy is like you said, he, he, he's kind of like a hermit. So he's, he doesn't have a group of 20 friends who are lifting just as hard and just as long as him and seeing, oh, wow, like that's not happening for them. What's happening for me? You know what I mean? He's, he doesn't have that experience. My understanding at least is that. So, um, and I, you know, I think people listening could, at, this could develop too much into comparisons on this person versus that person. It's more, I think, an interesting topic to discuss in, in terms of like human variation. Uh, that was one of the things he and I kind of discussed as well. It was like, well, you know, how much does one's hypertrophic ability vary? And, and to me, just like most human traits, I think it varies tremendously. You know, I know Mike Isertel would very much agree with that. I think most people really who've been doing this a long time would agree with that. So that's why it was a little surprising to hear that, to hear his stance on it. Yeah, but even... Um... Uh, I, I know like Brian is probably going to join us shortly. I'm just assuming that he will be late like everybody is. Uh, but um, I like what he, it actually seemed like when you pressed him about it, he actually kind of agreed that like, yeah, like there are freaks. Well, um, that's what I was going to say is, is he he's saying he's average, but then he, he agreed. Well, yeah, sure. There's these freaks that are crazy, but he was almost acting as if like there's the freaks and then there's everybody else. Yeah, and that's yeah. clearly not true. There's going to be the freaks or sorry, freaks here. And then there's going to be like freaks minus 10%, freaks minus 20%. Like there's going to be everything in between. So it's not like, well, we're all people. And a lot of people talk about this. Oh, there's the genetic freaks. And then there's the rest of us. It's like, no guys, there's literally every variation in between. You know, there's yeah, a yeah. 50th percentile, a 72nd percentile, et cetera. Yeah. Like, like do, you, do you see that in any other sport? Like, like in basketball. So like there is like, uh, LeBron James mm -hmm. and like, like those guys in his league. And then like everybody else is just playing in the NBA and are equally good. Like, no, like very clearly no. Right. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just, that's the kind of my sense. On it. So I'd like to get him back on and kind of discuss a little bit further. Some obviously not just the genetic topic, but things in general. Um, yeah, I, I do think he's, he's got a great channel and I think yeah, yeah. ultimately this is a lot of just conversation. It's not going to change what we recommend 